it for a minute. She, she was killing everybody. And everybody who's there know who I'm talking about. I ain't saying no names. She was on fire. So I was, I was encouraged by that. The ladies Friday night were on their game. The guys were kind of like, man, where y'all we at? Like? What, what's going on? The ladies came to play Friday. All right, we are, we are in Romans 8 officially. I don't know if I should be encouraged by your applause or not. I had a few people ask me over different parts of the weekend, are we really in Romans 8? And I was like, why do you keep your name, man? I worked hard to get us through those reviews. I mean, that's hard to do when you're doing such, such serious and thick theology like Romans. So, but we are back in Romans 8 today. We are at a slower place because we're in sort of a different a different pace. So it's a slower pace. We are going to just look at four verses today. And one of the reasons why is because Romans is such a dense theological book. It's very rich. It's very meaty. And it's a lot of reiteration. There's a lot of reiteration in the book. From God's perspective, God wanted to have the truths that are repeated to be repeated so that they become what we actually really believe. And that we understand what these mean. So these four verses today do not fall outside of the realm of that reality. It's, it's clunky language, but it's deep theological truths from God's perspective. Now, I'm emphasizing that a lot because a lot of us will process, we all process what we hear by what we feel, what resonates with us, what we experience. It's, it's very difficult not to. Many of our lives are a host of experiences, and we process everything, even God's word, through our experiences and, and, and through our ability to connect with what's being said. And sometimes when we read things and we don't seem like we can connect with it, we dismiss it, but it still is the word of God, and it's important for us. And God is reiterating particular truths and promises from his perspective. So it's from an eternal perspective, even if it's not from an experiential perspective. The things that God is saying here about those people who believe in Jesus are just as true as you being able to say, I'm really here saying these things. In fact, I would say they're more true because it's God's word than if I say them. But today we're going to look at these four verses. It's going to be stuff that we've heard before, but we want to just zoom in now to these four verses to hopefully, hopefully help us either refresh with these ideas, maybe hear them for the first time, or to just dig our heels in on what we already believe to be true. Now, one thing that is different about these four verses, even though it's similar language, is, is Paul is speaking from a different side now. He's been speaking from one side of the law that says you can't obey the law perfectly. You can't obey the Ten Commandments and the other 613 laws that were connected with the Ten Commandments. You can't obey those things perfectly, which was the standard. Even though God provided a way for sins to be forgiven, when you disobey the law, the standard was different. It was to obey it perfectly. So he's been talking from one side, looking at the law and seeing you can't do it. But now he's coming on the other side. He's coming on the other side and now explaining what Jesus did from the other side. So now we're not looking at the law as something that we compare ourselves to. Now we're looking at it and seeing what Jesus has done from the eyes of salvation. So he's transitioning his perspective. And he begins by wanting us to understand a significant truth 
that is hard to understand because again, we process what we hear by our experience. And he begins with the verse, verse one, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, verse two, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. In order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now many of you may, some of you may know this, many of you may not. There is a theological concept called imputed righteousness. And it's basically that Christ, we take, we have inherited Christ's righteousness because he kind of took on our disobedience on the cross. So God sees us as inheriting. He's imputed Christ's righteousness to people. So we, we didn't earn it, but he's given it to us. He sees it as if we've done it because we believe in Jesus Christ. It's, this, this theological concept is called imputed righteousness. And most, most times, 2 Corinthians 5.21 is sort of the verse that people hold on to to state that. And I've, I'm surprised that this passage is not considered one that describes that theological reality. I, in my study of imputed righteousness, this passage doesn't come up. Romans 3 will come up and, 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 and some other ones, but not this one. And I'm surprised by that because the language of this passage is almost saying the same thing. It's almost saying the same thing. There is a wonderful truth here for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Again, this is from the eternal perspective. It may not match our experience. It's from eternity. There are times where God will speak to us from what we can relate to. You've heard me say this. When he says stuff like, do not worship their gods, he's speaking to us in the language in the way we understand the world because there are no such thing as other gods. There's only God, and then they're all demons. There is no God of Islam. There is no God of Hinduism. There's no other God. Those are demons. It's either God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Everything else is demonic. But when he talks to us, he says, do not worship their gods as if they're other gods. So he speaks from what, how we see the world, and he enters into that. But then he speaks from outside of our experience. And this passage is one of those. So let's pray. And let's zoom in. Father, thank you for your word. And even though we live in a more simplistic way of explaining and understanding things, and there always, there's always some measure of distance between what you say and your word, because honestly, Lord, you know this. We, we, we didn't grow up. We, we, you didn't have us be around or alive during the Mosaic Law. We weren't there at Mount Sinai with Moses. And then we didn't live for, you know, so, uh, many years, over a millennia. We didn't live that way trying to live according to these commandments. We've never gone to sacrifice an animal. We've never had to pay for an animal or to do anything for our sins to be forgiven. So there's language here, the law, the Ten Commandments. These aren't even things that we think about consistently, whether we believe or don't believe. So there are times when we read these things and they can go over our heads or not take effect. But I pray this morning, Father, that that would be different. 
because the language here, though clunky, though theological, though dense, is, 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 it describes our eternal disposition before you. And even if it doesn't always match our experience, we don't always feel like the power of sin is broken. We don't always feel that we're redeemed and loved. We don't feel some of the things that you're saying are true. That is part of the faith that we have to have. It's not just believing in Jesus, but believing what you say about us because of Jesus. So even with a weakened voice, Lord, I pray that you would use this this morning. Use what I believe you've given me to communicate and encourage those of us who believe in you. And I pray that this would convict those who do not believe in you in this room. For there is no middle ground here. Either we are with you or we're not. May what I say today that is true take effect in the lives of your sons and daughters. And if I say something that's not true, Lord, may they forget it if I'm infallible. And may anyone, everyone, go back and double check their scriptures and make sure that what is said here is what's true here. For your glory and our good, in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Beginning in verse 1, this is the kingdom reality, right? We're kingdom people, people of the kingdom. We are brought into the kingdom by faith in Jesus Christ. So by faith, we're living in light of the kingdom being a reality. And so this is kingdom reality right here when he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Now, we've talked about this before. Whenever you see the word therefore, it's always pointing back to Something that was previously said. It's always pointing back to that. Now the standard rule is sort of to de determine what, how much he's talking about is, is there a previous therefore that you can go back to? So if there is one, then you typically go back to that therefore and say, okay, the therefore that he's talking about covers everything from the previous one. So that being the case, then everything he's saying from verse 14 in chapter 7 up to Romans 8 is what he's talking about when he says, therefore. So in other words, in light of what I just said to you, in light of what you just read, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. This is a powerful reality. And even though it doesn't have the same, it's not as confusing as verses 14 through 25 are, it has almost the same level of controversy. It's a controversial statement. It's a controversial statement. Now, when we think of condemnation, often we think of experience. Right? I feel condemned. Right? We talk a lot about what's the difference between conviction and condemnation. Right? Well, conviction, we're supposed to feel conviction. So conviction is guilt from sin that gets up, and condemnation is guilt from sin that gives up. Okay? That's sort of our experience. When we're, when we're believers and we sin, which we do, we still get back up and we still honor the Lord. The Lord didn't choose us and say, this person's never going to sin. And oh, as soon as you sin, well, that's it. That's not how it works. Right? So we get back up. We keep going. The Proverbs say, a righteous man falls seven times and he gets up seven times. So we get back up and we feel guilty, right? But then there's condemnation. It's condemnation that doesn't get back up. It gives up. So it's the, it's, the, it's the Peter versus Judas. Peter sins against the Lord, denies him, hears that Jesus rose from the dead and runs into the tomb. Judas betrays the Lord, realizes that he was wrong and feels guilty 
and then he doesn't, he doesn't go back and ask for forgiveness. He hangs himself. He gives up. Okay, the condemnation here is not talking about our experience. It's talking about an eternal declaration. It's the difference between justification and condemnation. Where justification, when you're justified, means God sees us as not guilty. Condemnation is the opposite. God sees you as guilty. He's guilty. So there are a lot of people who do not believe in Jesus Christ who will experience condemnation. They will stand before the Lord and be declared guilty. We've known words like this, depart from me, I never knew you. When he says there's no, now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, he's not talking about our, emo, our experience. He's talking about from the eternal perspective. Those who believe in Jesus are not guilty. Not guilty. Now, why is this controversial? Well, depending on how you translate the last 11 verses, verses 14 through 25, there, we went through this in a couple messages. I'm not going to hit all of it, but I did three messages on who is the man in Romans 7. You can check that on the website, solidrockchurch.net. Click on sermons, go to Romans, you'll see that. But there are three kind of typical views. So if you think that he's speaking as a believer in verses 14 through 25, for I do not do what I want to do, but what I don't do, I do. When he's all that language and all this wretched body of mine, if you feel like he's speaking as a Christian, then this verse is controversial. Because if he's speaking as a Christian, someone who sins consistently and who's aware of how often they sin, he's still saying you're not guilty, though, in Jesus Christ. So even if you process that, as a Christian speaking, which some do, he still says, despite that, you're not guilty. So your experience, if that's Christian language, your experience does not transfer to your eternal destination. So you feel like, man, this wretched body of mine, how can I not sin? I, for I do not do what I want to do. I do the thing that I don't want to do. And if, that's, if I'm a Christian and that's what it means, then verse 1 of Romans 8 says you are not guilty before God. That's a controversial statement because we are guilty by experience. We're guilty by experience. Everyone in this room is. But yet he says we're not. If you think that that Romans 7, 14 through 25 is he's not a believer, he's speaking as someone who's not a believer, and that language makes sense at all, this wretched body of mine, how can I, I'm not, and he's not a believer, then this is a controversial statement. Because if you're not a believer, then you definitely are guilty. You are definitely guilty if you're not a believer. And here he says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's controversial. It's controversial. You're not guilty. How does that work? It was so controversial that people thought, oh, okay, well, if I'm not guilty, then we could just sin like it's nothing. And this is what he devotes the whole of Romans chapter 6 for. No, that's not what it means. You know, if you receive an inheritance, let's just say you find out you received an inheritance. You had a relative you didn't even know died and randomly gave you $22 million. It's, it's, it's an analogy, you know what I'm saying? Not, you know, we don't read tarot cards here, right? It's an analogy, right? You get $22 million. It would be foolish to blow that $22 million 
in one sitting. It'd be dumb. We get a couple of things, some things we want, you know. Right? I'd be like, give me some, I'm your pastor, you know. <laughs> Workers worth his wages, you know. <laughs> Creflo Dollar would ask for all of it. <laughs> That's probably not helpful. <laughs> but it would be, you, you wouldn't take it, and it'd, be, it'd just be, it'd be weird. Like, why'd you do that? You blew all your money. Why you wouldn't do that? It wouldn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? You want to be patient with it. You want to develop it, do things, invest, do things, build upon that. You want it to make sense. God wants the passage to make sense. Depending on how you process those verses, it's a controversial passage. And he's telling us this so that we don't blow it. Now, if you think that that passage, those 11 verses, 7, 14 through 25, He's speaking hypothetically and describing that the law can't save and what it's like to try to obey the law under the law, even though it can't save and it's still good, which is the right perspective. You had to be there. (laughs) This is a controversial passage. Because you're not guilty. In other words, you're not going to hell. When you see God, we went through the book of Revelation. When John saw Jesus, John referred to himself in the Gospel of John as a disciple that Jesus loved, right? When he saw Jesus in the eternal realm, hair, white as snow, skin bronze, eyes fire, John didn't recognize Jesus at all. He dropped, and the Spirit had to lift him back up. We are not going to see Jesus and be cool. It's not like, oh, that's, oh, that's the Lord. Oh, that's what, what's up? That's what's up? We're going to drop. We're going to be afraid, terrified, like John was. So the Spirit reminds us, now, nah, belong to me. You will never be more aware of how sinful you are until we see him. Peter saw him at the, at the dock, and he brought in all these fish. And what did Peter say? I'm a sinful man. That was just fish he let happen. When we see him, we're going to realize how un, unwelcome we are. And he's going to say, not guilty. Not guilty. But what about, not guilty. I didn't ask for forgiveness right before I died. Not guilty. It's a powerful reality. Now what's important is the language here. The language, in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus is intentional language. It's eternal language. It's from God's perspective as he sees us in Christ Jesus. In a moment, we're going to get to a little bit more specifics of what does that mean. So he says there's no condemnation. Why is there no condemnation? Verse 2. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, this is new language for us up to this point. There's a couple different laws here. This is new language. We know the law, the Ten Commandments, and so forth. Now, for us practically, because we, the Ten Commandments doesn't always connect with us. So when you think of the law, for us practically, how does that play out today? Think of the law in this way. Anything that makes people think they're good enough to go to heaven. 
whatever that is. Everyone has a law. So we don't know the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law is not that. Everyone has a reason why they think they're going to go to heaven. There's a reason why every funeral, even though the person who's dead was a gangster, there's a reason why they say he's in a better place. Why is that? Because everyone thinks that just when you die, you're going to heaven no matter what. So everyone has a law. So when you think of the law in context, God is referring to the Mosaic law. But for us, practically speaking, it's whatever people think about themselves or whatever standards they keep that make them think they deserve to go to heaven. So when you hear people say, well, I'm a good person. I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't do this. I don't do that. Okay, well, why is that the standard? I mean, really, how good is good enough? If not cheating your taxes is the standard, then a lot of people have made it. I know some street dudes have never cheated. They need file taxes. <laughs> so it's like, what is, I had a whole neighborhood. It's just like, man, that's the standard? They ready to go. They're like Biggie, ready to die. I mean, it's just... The law is anything that anyone thinks should get them to heaven. Whatever it is. Today, it's, it's equality. It's whatever it is. It's, it's all these things. This is it. It's, it's what you got to believe. It's what you got to be about. So he introduces in verse 2 two different laws. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So what is a law? A law is a, a custom, a rule, a principle, a, a sacred ordinance, or a, a habitual practice that has authority over the people who are submitted to it. That's what the law is. We live by a set of laws, right? You can break the law. It has authority over us. A law always has authority over the people who were submitted under it. Whether you like the law or not. So I joked about taxes. There are people who think, man, it's unconstitutional. They take everything. Okay, but that's still the law. You gotta, we got to submit to the law. So whatever the law is, it has authority over people who are under it, where he introduces these two different laws, the law of the spirit of life in Christ and the law of sin and death. So we got three kind of laws at work here, the law of Moses in context or the standard that anyone thinks earns them heaven or a better place, whatever that means to them. The law of sin and death was kind of introduced in, 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 in chapter 7, verse 23, where he starts to see, I see a, a, new, I see a law at work. When I want to obey the law, I, I don't. So he calls this here the law of sin and death. And then you got the law of the spirit of life in Christ. So how do these all work together? How do these work together? Here's what he's trying to say. The law that he's been talking about all this time, which for our sake, in context, is the Ten Commandments and the other passages other scriptures that are connected to that. That law that is good, like it was good for God to put these Ten Commandments out. This is how you obey me. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, don't do these ten things. Right, that's good. But what happened was people habitually sinned against it. I habitually sinned against that reality. Just like any of us. My mom used to always say, she had... My mom had a lot of rules, but there was one rule that meant more than all of them. It was the first rule. was like, do not have company in my house when I'm not home. And sure enough, 
if it was a half a day of school, and we knew Ma don't get home till about six o'clock from work, and we getting home and it's 12.45, we got a good four hours, and then we could just clean it all up and be right. We would do it. And before I was a believer, I used to think my mom was a witch because she could come in the house, it would be vacuumed, dusted, spotless, and she would go, Jamie and Cease, we come out, hey, Ma, all excited, how you doing? She'd be like, why were David, Michael, Troy, Tony, and, and Lincoln in my home? Huh? Talk, mom, would you like? Don't lie. And now you now here's the second law: you get rape break, right? You're not bad for witness. I could not, for the life of me, give it. It was the most important law, right? The fact that she said, "Don't have company," something about that made me want to have company. And this is what the Ten Commandments were: Do not bear false witness. You do it. And sometimes you do a thing that's meaningful. You ever ask somebody ask you a question, you're like, oh man, I don't want to ask this question. <laughs> I saw a couple one time in the grocery store. It was a, a department store. And the woman, the wife said to her husband, do I look fat in this dress? And I looked at him. <laughs> she was, you know, I'm plump, so I can say this was plump. And I was like, I was right there. Like, she, she acted as if she wanted me to weigh in. I was like, I didn't say nothing. <laughs> so she said to him, do I look fat in this dress? And I was like, mm. <laughs> So I just, went, I just pretended like I was doing something else when I was watching, and I respected him. He said, no, you don't. You know, she said, does this shirt make me look fat? And I was like, oh, man. He said, no, it doesn't. He said, your body makes you look fat, but not the shirt. <laughs> See, you would have lied. He didn't lie. He didn't bear false witness. He didn't break the commandment. Right? But the reality is, we, we're, we're designed to do that, right? Even if we think it's for good purpose. I know this shirt doesn't hit my body. I, I get it. I know, right? I get it. The reality is, the law brings out the sinfulness of the heart. So even though the Ten Commandments are good, what comes out of the heart is a desire to break them habitually. Even if you don't break all of them, James said you break all of them when you break one of them, right? So, so this, this law of sin and death comes out. It, it, it just comes out. And by doing that, we become outside of the law. We're, not, we're no longer obeying God. We're outside of the law, so we become outlaws to God. We are outlaws to God. We're outside of his law, and we're rebels against the law, so we're outlaws to God. But then he talks about another law, the law of the spirit of the life in Christ. This is an important law, because that law, Jesus Christ comes... Right? He comes and obeys the law, the standard to get to heaven perfectly in the flesh. He obeys that law. Then he dies on the cross 
punished as if he disobeyed the law, rises from the dead, proving that dead death is only for those who sin. So him bringing himself back from the dead was evidence that he didn't sin. That's why the resurrection is important. Because if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we'd have a problem. But he rises from the dead, proving that he didn't sin and that he was able to forgive sin because he didn't break the law. And now he extends forgiveness to all the people who believe in Jesus Christ. And when you believe in Jesus Christ, God sees you as in Christ, as if you kept the law like he did. And so now you're not outside the law or an outlaw. You are now an in-law. You see, you become a son and a daughter to the father and a brother and sister to Christ. So you're not outside the law. You are inside the law as if you kept the law like Jesus, but you're also an in-law. And the only way you can really become an in-law is through marriage. And we know the scripture says that those who believe in Jesus are the bride of Christ. So we're in-laws, both that we're in the law that we kept it as if we did, and we're in-laws because we're related with God's family. So God doesn't punish his in-laws. He punishes outlaws. People outside the law and who rebel against the law. This is why there's no condemnation. So he introduces these other two laws. The law of sin and death comes out of a, desire, a, a lack of being able to keep whatever law that is. And all of us have different stories. Anyone in here could probably tell a story that would make us laugh of something you were not supposed to do and you did it. We, our childhood is riddled with that stuff. We have a lot, and they make us laugh. Now, they weren't funny then. They're funny now because we're older. This is what he's saying. The law of the spirit, so we have God's spirit in us, of the life in Christ Jesus has set us free. So in other words, now we no longer have that law. Remember, laws have authority, right? We no longer have that law over us. Sin and death is no longer the law that we're submitted to. Now, why is this tough? Because it's not our experience. Here's what most of us want. Any true Christian wants to honor the Lord, right? Any true believer in this room wants to honor the Lord. You struggle, you're going to have some struggles, that's real. But any true believer really has a conviction to honor the Lord. And most of us, because of that, we want the ability to obey the Lord to be a little easier. Let's just be honest, right? We read passages like, the spirit who rose Jesus from the dead is in us. And if we're 100% honest, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like you are resisting in your own power. You are seconds away from crossing the line, and it feels like nothing is stopping you. There is no devil and angel on your shoulder. How is that spirit raising Jesus from the dead and yet I'm, I'm, I'm finding it hard to resist this? How is the spirit of life of Christ in me? Is that a real thing? Very much so. And the reason why is because if it weren't a real thing, there would be no desire to obey God. <laughs> I've said this before in the past. This is a reality. Think about what the Bible is, right? The Bible is not a self-esteem book, okay? If you want self-esteem, don't read the scriptures. <laughs> don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it doesn't encourage you, right? 
But it encourages people who have faith in what it says and so we can find encouragement in it, right? We can find joy in our sorrow. We can find, we can find pain in our, we can find joy in our suffering, right? But you, when you read the Bible, it's going to tell you a lot of the stuff you do wrong, stop doing it. You don't read the Bible and be like, oh, okay, cool. Like, it'll be like, you heard it was said, don't do this. Well, I said, don't do it. If you do this, it's worse than that. The Bible is not a book that's supposed to build up self-esteem. And the fact that we even desire to read the Bible is evidence that the Spirit is at work in a believer. And when I say read it, I don't mean just like from a platonic perspective, like I'm just a professor of, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about the, the History Channel people who weigh in on the, the significance of the Bible every Easter, right? Always looking. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you get up and you spend some time a day reading the Bible, trying to memorize it, trying to apply it. No one does that unless the Spirit of God is in them, giving them the desire to do that. Because most of us would read the Bible, realize, man, we, we still fall short. We think God is angry at us. And then we distance ourselves from the Bible. That's why when we give in a saying, you don't, come, you don't want to come to church, you don't want to go to small, you don't want to degroup, you don't really want to pray, you don't want to read, you feel like a hypocrite, you don't want to lift your hands, you don't want to do nothing. Because you feel that I'm not measuring up. Almost every Christian I know, that Matthew 7 passage scares everyone. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Depart from me, I never knew you. Uh, how do you know? People forget that Jesus said, except the one who does the will of the Father in heaven. That phrase is in that passage. What's the will of the Father? Believe in Jesus Christ. <laughs> that passage is in talking to people who genuinely believe in Jesus Christ. But we just, because it's just not our experience. It's not how we feel. So in faith, we have to believe that these promises are just as true. There is no, we are in Christ and that God sees us. When it talks about in, it just means similar to or, or related to. Just like it says, we were in Adam. I've never seen Adam my whole life. If he showed up at a family reunion, I wouldn't know him. But the Bible says I'm in Adam. Why? Because I'm just like him. I'm related to him. Well, now that you're in Christ, we're related to Jesus. We're like Jesus from God's perspective. This is the challenge. So if you are a genuine believer, there is no condemnation. When you stand before the Lord, as frightening as that may be for us, he's going to calm that down and welcome us home. Amen. And he explains more specifically about the law and he said this before, but he wants to double down. He wants to make sure you get it. Let me double down and make sure you understand what it means. So he takes us to verse 3. He says, what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. It's just language. We just don't talk like this, right? I feel like this is like Game of Thrones or something. I, the language is just, it's just a different way to communicate. What the law could not do was weakened by the flesh. God did. 
Now, it sounds like what it's saying is the law was weak. The law was weak. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the law could not bring about salvation for people because the flesh was too weak to obey the law. The flesh was too weak. If you remember John Ramirez's testimony, he was talking about, I used to cast spells on Christians. I'd have some of them on their knees. And he said it wasn't that the God wasn't powerful, it was that the vessel was weak. He said there was no fasting, no prayer, no real pursuit of God in their life. And he made this statement, he said, you got people who will read the Bible for 10 minutes and then do all this other stuff all day and expect that 10 minutes to give them the power to resist temptation. That was a sobering statement. Sobering. When you think about how much do I really pursue, obey, read? He's saying the, the law wasn't weak, but the flesh is unable to keep the law. And then he says something remarkable. God did. So God who created the universe, who gave the law to people, said, you know what? I'll keep it. I'll keep it. I'm going to limit, limit my deity, conform myself to a human body so I can keep the law. I'm going to die a gruesome death. You know, God designed all of the nerve endings that we experience. Everything, if I take a nail and stick it right here, that pain that I feel, he designed that. Designed all of it. He designed every pain, every toothache, all of it. So when he decided that he was going to become a human being, limiting his deity, he knew that when he designed the flesh to experience intense pain, when a nail pierces it, or the, or the flesh to experience intense pain, when a whip that has bone, stone, and glass at the end of it that latches onto the body intensely to rip the flesh off, he designed it to feel that way and then said, I'm going to experience that. So the God of eternity entered into our experience so that we could enter into eternity with him. This is what makes Jesus unique because no one else can claim to do that. This is what makes him unique. Since he condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a grain offering, as a sin offering. Again, this is like kind of strange language, it seems like, right? He said he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Do you know the, the flesh isn't necessarily sinful, though? Like, as far as we know, in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve bit the fruit, we get no indication that the flesh that they had on their body changed. We get no indication of that. No indication. We know that, that God said, because you've done this, cursed is the ground because of you, right? So now you got, you know, a lot of stuff. Bees, gnats, all of that is because of the fall. <laughs> Stick of briars, poison ivy, because of the fall. It's all because of the fall. I guarantee you, Adam is probably 
the second most popular person in heaven. I know he is. You see, Jesus is like, hey, where's Adam? Like, bro, what happened? I guarantee. And you go ask, I want to know. It's curious. What were you, hey, just out of curiosity, I know, I, I've sinned too, I, you know. But what were you thinking, bro? Like the serpent was talking, like no other animal could talk. Like, what were you thinking? He's probably like, that's what the servant was talking. That's probably what <laughs> We get no indication that flesh changed. So the sin isn't, the flesh isn't necessarily sinful. So it's not saying that the flesh in and of itself is sinful because Jesus also had human flesh. How is this possible? How does he come in the likeness of sinful flesh? And there's a sin offering. How does he condemn sin in the flesh? The flesh isn't sinful. As far as we know, Adam and Eve didn't, their flesh didn't change. Now, there is a philosophical thing that you can't prove this from Scripture. I thought this was an interesting argument first time I came across it. Is that Jesus, that they said the flesh is sinful, but Jesus' flesh wasn't sinful because technically speaking, Jesus doesn't come from Adam. The Holy Spirit impregnated Mary. Now, Mary comes from Adam, but if, if Adam is the one who brings sin into the world, then the transmission of sin comes through Adam. So technically speaking, Jesus didn't come from Adam. So people say this, the flesh is sinful, but Jesus' wasn't because he didn't come from Adam. The Holy Spirit impregnated Mary. So his flesh is different. It's philosophical. You can't prove it from the scriptures. Interesting argument. I don't get any indication of it from the scriptures. That sword that went in Jesus' flesh and blood and water gushed out, it looked legitimate to me from what I read in the scriptures. When they punched Jesus in the face and they put the crown of thorns on his head and said, who hit me? The flesh seemed legitimate to me like ours. When he was beaten 39 times, and then told to carry that 100-pound wooden cross up the hill to Golgotha, and he was too weak to do it. So they had to get Simon of Cyrene to come out and help him carry the cross up. Seemed like it was regular flesh to me. When he was in the garden asking the Father to take this cup from him, and he was praying so hard that his sweat became like drops of blood, it seemed like regular flesh to me. So it's a good philosophical argument, but I don't think that's what he's saying here. Saying Jesus comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. It just means in the same flesh that people sin in. We sin because of our desires. My skin doesn't make me sin. My desires do. So Jesus comes in the same, the likeness, Similarity, the same, the same flesh that we all have. It's basically saying he has the same flesh you do. It's the likeness of sinful flesh. The same flesh that people, that humanity sends in, Jesus has. But the scripture says that he condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned it in the flesh. Again, language that we don't use this type of language to describe what he's saying. What he's saying is what Jesus did in the flesh condemns the flesh. So Jesus obeying the law perfectly 
Now the Father declares that the authority of sin, the authority of our desires and sinful nature is no longer an authority over us. Because Jesus paid the penalty. And it's amazing because he uses this language, a sin offering. Now it's highly unlikely that this is what he's referring to. Because this church didn't even have that many Jewish people in it. This was a highly Gentile church, at least historians believe. So they might not have even been familiar with the Levitical code. But let's just say they were. This is a powerful imagery then. Let's just say that he was talking about this. You go to passages like Exodus 30, chapter 10, and it says this. Once a year, Aaron is to perform the atonement ceremony for the altar. Throughout your generations, he is to perform the atonement ceremony once a year with the blood of the sin offering for the atonement on the horns. So you get to Leviticus 4 and, and half of chapter 5, and it talks about what the sin offering is. And one of the requirements of it is to take the blood, to kill a bull, to gut the bull, take its blood, sprinkle it on the altar, and then to drag its body outside of the camp and burn it as a sin offering to the Lord. So if you look at the requirements, some of the things that are happening, here's Jesus, essentially gutted by the Romans, back ripped open, spear stuck in him. Like the bull, blood spilled. The bull taken outside the camp. Jesus taken outside of Jerusalem, but in Rome. Crucified in a foreign land for the forgiveness of sin as a sin offering. Now, it's highly unlikely that Paul is referring to this, but the language is amazing, if he was. What he's probably referring to is essentially what he's doubled down on and communicated significantly, that Jesus became a sin offering not in the Old Testament sense, but simply he offered himself for our sins in exchange. He took our sinfulness. We take his righteousness. It's likely what he's getting at. Now, the theological concept called the incarnation of God becoming a human being is an amazing, if you have a chance to study the incarnation, study it. Ask Carl or Dr. Lee, or ask me later for books on it or chapters that would be really helpful. It is a beautiful reality. You can see it in the scriptures clearly in like Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, right? You see this beautiful reality of the incarnation. Jesus, not counting equality with God, something to hold on to, but humbles himself and becomes the servant. But there's another incarnation that happens. This is what also makes us in Jesus. Is, so God becomes, a, becomes in a human body, and as God, well, the spirit becomes inside God's people. The spirit of God lives in all of God's people. And it's not the incarnation like Jesus, but it's a likeness of it. We have God comes in our bodies and gives us a desire to obey him. 
Do we do it perfectly? Nope. Nope. But he is pleased with the pursuit. The pursuit glorifies him. It's important to realize that the very aspects of the faith that the Bible talks about connect with us, right? So Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteous. Genesis 15. Abraham did not have any proof when God said, I'm going to give you a seed. You're going to have a son out of your your body and your wife. You're 100, she's 90. Then he said, count the stars in the sky. Those are going to be all your descendants. He said, Abraham believed God he considered him righteous. He had no proof of it. No proof. We have the same faith as Abraham. Because we weren't there to see Jesus live. We weren't there to see him die or rise from the dead. So when Jesus told Thomas, you believe because you see, blessed are those who do not see and believe. It's the same faith as Abraham. It's not a theological concept. It's a practical reality for all of us who believe in Jesus Christ. The same faith as Abraham because we didn't see it and we only believe it. And many of us, if you're a Christian, you think despite how sinful you know you are, that when you die, you're going to go to heaven. Why? Because he said it. We are just like Abraham. Now we have the spirit of God in us. Just like Jesus. And so we walk, we, we fight, we live in order that we honor the Lord in this life. We live as people in the kingdom by faith. Jesus died to the presence, not to the penalty of sin, not the presence of it. Now, why didn't he do that? Wouldn't it be a lot easier if the presence of sin were gone? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, then how would you know you actually really believe him? If you don't go through any trials, how do you know you really trust the Lord? Right. <laughs> when everything is good, everybody's happy. Non-believers will get up and say, oh, Winning a war, man, I want to thank God. No, this is possible. And then their Instagram be the opposite of that. Yeah. How would you know you really believe in the Lord and trust him if you don't go through anything in this life that rattles your faith, that makes you say, man, I don't know about this? How do you know you really believe the Lord if you just feel forgiven and feel everything all the time. How do you know you really believe that you're forgiven if you don't fail sometimes and have to battle through that? This is why we do, this is why what happens to us. God isn't like angry or trying to, it's like, okay, these temptations from the enemy are tests from God. And we have to, in faith, battle that. I don't know, any, all the pastors I know wake up and do not feel any different because they're pastors. I don't know, any dude that wakes up, maybe Joel Osteen does. Because he smiles all the time. I don't know anybody else that I know of who feels like that. All the people I know who are godly don't wake up feeling godly. They wake up anxious. 
They struggle with anger, with lust, with jealousy. They struggle with depression, disappointment. They lose jobs, get cancer, lose children, are falsely accused, have people turn their back on them, they're betrayed, falsely imprisoned, beaten, all of it. The same thing that happens to Christians happens to non-Christians. The difference is Christians still keep believing that God is who he says he is. Amen. And that's because the spirit of God is in the Christian prompting us. Keep going. Keep going. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body for you are not under law but under grace. Keep going. Keep fighting. This room is filled with people who've been through a lot and they still come up to the mic and they give a word of encouragement. In pain and suffering, I've preached on Sunday mornings and felt like it's the last thing I want to do. I've counseled people who are this close, this close to walking away from the Lord. I'm talking about godly people. I'm not talking about people who do it all the time. The spirit of Christ in believers, it compels us to keep on, keep fighting. And that's why there's no condemnation. The spirit of Christ in believers makes you stand up when the culture says sit down. It makes you disagree with the direction of society when they tell you you're on the wrong side of history. It's like, well, I kind of actually believe in the guy who created all history, so <laughs> I'm actually on the right side of it. He says that he condemned sin in the flesh and gave himself as a sin offering in order that what? Verse 4. Here's the reason why. In order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Now when he uses flesh and spirit, he's not talking about two spheres of existence. He's not talking about the, the natural world and the spiritual world. He's talking about two natures in a person. So flesh and spirit. A flesh is basically in Adam. It's people who don't know, Adam, don't know Christ and people who do know Christ. That's how he sees it. So it's not like, oh, like this metaphysical, you got to leave your body. and It's not Gnosticism. He's talking about people who don't believe in Christ or in the flesh. People who believe in Jesus or in the spirit. And he said the law's requirement would be fulfilled, so he's doubling down on the language. The fulfillment here means that there's no more sacrifices that need to happen. So let's just say he was talking about the Old Testament Levitical law of sin offering where there's no more that needs to happen because of Jesus now we don't I'm imagining we don't <laughs> you're not getting no bulls no doves no nothing when you sin I'm assuming people are wild you find out wild things <laughs> so I'm making an assumption that no one does that here 
So that doesn't apply to us in the one-to-one sense. So how do we then continue to sacrifice when we don't need to? Let me tell you how we do this. We sacrifice ourselves consistently. We walk around defeated, insecure, unworthy, hypocritical. And the irony is the people who don't trust the Lord, they're the most confident in their eternal salvation. The people that really trust the Lord are the ones that are kind of skeptical. The people who don't trust the Lord be doing their thing. Man, the enemy is good at what he does. He tells the people that don't know God, God loves you, and tells the people that do love God, God doesn't love you. We sacrifice ourselves. We withdraw down on ourselves. I need to make this right. I need to distance myself for a while, clean myself up a little bit. You may not use that actual language, but it's what we do. Listen. Spoiler alert. I'm a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. You are unworthy. You're a hypocrite. You're sinful. You don't deserve to go to heaven. You don't deserve forgiveness. And God says, you get it anyway. So let's let that out of the back. You are that. You're hypocrites. You're going to sin willfully this week. Willfully. God's going to convict you. You're going to feel bad. You're going to be tempted to distance yourself. You're going to start wondering if people, what people are going to think of you. Here's what God says about you. That you are forgiven. Keep going. Keep going. Fight this. Fight it. Sometimes we need help. You can't fight on your, everything on your own. Some things, when Jesus said some things require prayer and fasting, he said some demons require prayer and fasting in Mark 9. You can't do it alone. That's why we have a church. But we fight. We fight. The law's requirement has been fulfilled, but that only extends to those who are in Jesus. In other words, God sees the people who are in Jesus as having obeyed the law. The requirement is fulfilled. You're good. The people who don't, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. In other words, condemnation, the declaration of guilty of breaking the law, which is automatic dismissal from heaven, does not go to people who actually believe in Jesus Christ. This is important. He's, this is from God's perspective. God inspired Paul to write these words for this reason, so that we would keep going, keep fighting, keep walking. Because the worst thing in the world is feeling like a person who says they love you doesn't. That's one of the worst feelings in the world. The encouragement here is for those who believe in Jesus. So if you're a believer in this room, there's no condemnation. 
So keep going. God sees you as in Jesus. If you are not a believer, though, if you're not a believer, you know, in Chronicles of Narnia, they make this statement about Aslan the Lion. I'm going to mess it up. But they said something like, he's not safe. He's not safe. The God of love that you've heard about, this merciful and offers forgiveness, is not safe. He's not so loving, so merciful, so forgiving that people can reject his son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent to die on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can reject them and then he's supposed to be like, hey, come on in anyway. He's not safe. He's asking you to accept the free gift of salvation by believing that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Romans 10 tells us you will be saved. He's asking that of anyone here who's not a believer this morning. Don't leave without at least asking a question. There are many of us that would love to answer it if that's where you are. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because we are in, related to, belong to, sons, daughters, brothers, and sisters. And it's by this grace we have been saved. Any questions? So I'll hand up there first. Adria, go. Thank you, Chris. same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead being at work in us. So practically though, like I know you, you know, you talked about how that might not be how we feel in our experience, but like applying to the struggle against like sin in our lives, like what does that mean? Like how does that, how do we find hope in that practically, yeah. you know? Like, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, that's a good question. So what, what it's saying, what, 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 even the passage today, what it's getting at and what we've read up to this point, so in Romans 6 and some of Romans 7, what we've read is that the, the ability to resist sin and not give into it means it doesn't have the same authority over you, right? That's the whole point. And it doesn't, again, that the challenge is we're resisting and it feels like it's just us. But the reality is the spirit that rose Christ from the dead did rise us from the dead if you read Ephesians 2. As a matter of fact, the next couple of verses that we're going to look at next week talks about the mind of the flesh versus the mind of the spirit. It's going to get into more detail, but essentially what it's saying is you, there, there are times you fail, and you're probably more aware of the times you fail than the times you don't. And that's how most of us think. We're just more aware of the times we fail than the times we don't. From God's perspective, there would never be a time where you don't fail if his spirit wasn't in you. So the fact that you resist, the fact that you actually care about this is evidence that the spirit is in you. So when God is saying that, he's saying, listen, continue to fight. And as you grow, as you continue to fight, then he's with you. He's with us. 
So it's really just a matter, it's really a statement of not experience necessarily, but it gives us faith to continue to fight. Because we believe, if Ephesians 2 is right, that we were dead in transgressions and sins, then there's no way that any of us would want to do anything that shows signs of life unless we actually have it. So the fact that you actually show signs of life, you resist sin, you fight, your, your life has been changed, transformed because of Jesus, that's what it means. Does it mean? So listen, the Mosaic law, here was the standard for the Mosaic law, be sinless, right? In the law of Christ, we sin less. So it went from sinless to sin less. Those words got separated. And that's how we live. We couldn't be sinless, but he's given us his spirit to help us sin less. And that's how we live. Good question, Adrian. Eli? He back there. So you ended your sermon with um, an invitation to ask questions for those who struggle in their faith or yeah. don't have faith. So as we go out and we evangelize, we tell people about God and we help to encourage that in other people, what do we then tell them to do? Right? So someone who says to me, I actually think I believe in God. I, I believe in Jesus. I want Jesus in my life. What, is the, what then do I encourage them to do? do? Is it a prayer of repentance? Is it going to get baptized? Like, What is the next step? It's a good question, bro. So first, the whole prayer, prayer of repentance thing, that's kind of so people get like a sense of, okay, there's an oral sort of communication that you believe in God, right? You don't see that in the scriptures, though. So the sinner's prayer in terms of like, that's not in the Bible. That's something that was created post-scripture, post the, the canon being closed. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I, so you can do it or not do it. I think it's helpful. What I would do is say, listen, let's spend some time together. Would you be open to reading some stuff and talking to it? And then would you open to coming to my church or me helping you find a place? And, uh, that, that's where I would go first. And then I would talk about baptism. I would talk about, I want to try to be as biblical as possible. So like when people got saved, they joined community. They didn't like, oh, I believe, and then they're doing their own thing. And people got baptized right away. Remember, baptism isn't the evidence of fruit, it's the evidence of faith. You never saw people in the scriptures, all they did was believe and get baptized. So I would start there, and if, you, if it's you who leads them to the Lord, you can pray the prayer, but, I, but that's, not, that's not how you make a disciple, right? We're supposed to make disciples of all people, not just tell them to believe in Jesus. So I'd say, hey, would you be interested in reading some materials and learning about your faith? Would you be interested in coming with me to this meeting or to my church? And talking through some stuff, I would start there. That's where I would go. I think we run to that prayer as if, like, that's biblical, and then it's like, and that's it. I've seen people pray for people. We go, all right, man, you're a believer. And it's like, that's like having a newborn baby and being like, all right, well, man, I'm going out. Feed yourself. <laughs> you just can't do it, right? You can't eat. So you got you to gotta beat it. You got to feed. You got to feed. That person needs meat. Thank you. Yep. Archer, and I got you next. Um... Is it um, biblically wrong to, for someone to doubt their salvation? Is it biblically wrong? Yeah. Because I know the Bible says um, believers should examine themselves. So what if you examine yourself and see that you are, you know? That you don't believe? Or you feel like you don't believe? 
Me, personally? No, I'm just saying, you, I'm just saying <laughs> hypothetically. I mean, we can make it personal if we want to. That's your question, question, right? It's a general question. Like, yeah. is, it wrong? is it wrong? General, right. Yeah. Uh, is it biblically wrong to doubt? I don't think so. Okay. So you look at Jude 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Right? You look at 2 Timothy 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. So I think there's, there's a, the rea- I think the reality is we are going to doubt some. Now, the, the diff- there's a difference between doubting and staying in doubt that leads to denying. Right? That's difference because 2 Timothy 2.12 says if we deny him, he will also deny us. He's not talking about struggling, doubt. Right? He's talking about, but, the, but then you got passages like, look, 2 Peter 1.9, it's still my favorite verse. This is my favorite verse in all of scripture. When he says, he lists a bunch of qualities in verses 5 through 7, right? Make every effort to add this to your faith to faith, virtue, godliness, self-control, brotherly kindness, affection, right? Then he says in verse 9, if anyone is not growing in these qualities, he said he is so nearsighted. He didn't say he's not a believer. He didn't say, he said, if you're not growing in these qualities, he is so nearsighted that he has forgotten that he has been cleansed of his former sins. In other words, what he's saying is if you're not growing, you've forgotten that Jesus has given you power to resist the sins, and you can grow in these qualities. He says you've just forgotten who you are. So he says make your calling and election sure. So if you feel like, or someone's like, man, I don't know if I'm a believer, okay, let's talk about that. I remember, I've I've counseled people who try to use it as a weapon. Well, maybe I just wasn't chosen. Maybe I'm just not a believer then. Maybe God didn't choose me to believe. I was like, okay, why are you not scared about that? Like, why are you saying that with, like, as if that's the great escape? Like, that's the worst thing in the world. Then. Why are you not concerned? Because if that's the case, then, you're, then this is all you got. This is it. If this world is all we got, man, we're pitied. It's a crazy place. My kids are growing up in a crazy world. I got conversations with my son about stuff I never thought I'd have to talk about. I got to explain what the, how people can identify something they don't look like. I got to tell my, I mean, this is a crazy world. So no, I, I think it's okay to doubt. I think doubt is actually, I mean, even the disciples, when Jesus said, one of you are going to betray me, what they say? They didn't say, oh, it's Judas, this dude. <laughs> they didn't say that, right? They weren't blaming each other. They were like, it's, it's Matthew. I knew it was, he was a tax collector, man. I know. Nah, what they say? Is it me, Lord? Is it me? Is it me? Like, as soon as they heard it, is it me? They were worried about themselves. I think it's good to be worried about ourselves. But I don't think we should be so worried about it. And if we find out that we're not in the faith or something's up, talk to somebody to help us, right? Don't stay there. Don't make that your, your destiny, your eternal declaration for yourself, right? Like, hey, I need help. I need somebody to help me with this because I'm struggling. So. All right, any other questions, just ask me afterwards because it is it's lunchtime. And the first lunch we're going to have together is communion. So the ushers can come forward. As, as, as we've talked about in this message, this is for those this is the only part of the service that is reserved for those who do believe in Jesus because it's something that he asked us to do to remember him, to remember the sacrifice of him dying on the cross. So if you're not a Christian, don't be ashamed. Just pass the tray beside you. But again, I would love to talk with you. Uh, there's a bunch of people here. The person who brought you would love to talk to you about what does it mean to be a Christian. But this particular part is 